I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. This is The Literary Life. I'm Mitchell Kaplan. I've owned books and books and been a bookseller for over 35 years. What you're about to hear are conversations about all things literary, with writers, readers, publishers, old friends, new friends, and anyone who might wander into our store with an interesting story to tell about their connection to books, reading, or writing. These will be informal, over-the-backyard-fence kind of conversations, the kind I and booksellers everywhere have each and every day. My guest is Jen Spira, and... Today is a very big day for her and for us because big time, her collection of stories has, um, today is pub day. And I don't often get to speak <laughs> to an author right on pub day. So that's really exciting. And for those of you who don't know, pub day is the day when we booksellers take the books out of the box and we put them on the shelves and people come storming in for them. And this is a book that I needed personally. After going through this last year that we went through, I happened to have read a lot of it in Galley prior to it coming to us. Mm. And I have to tell you, Jen, um, everything from... Everything from that great forward by uh, Stephen Colbert mm. to even reading the blurbs. Usually I skip oh. the blurbs, but the blurbs <laughs> were absolutely hysterical. Oh and then, God. of course, you gave this amazing shout out to someone who died, not because of COVID, but uh, uh, over a year ago, who yes. was very, who I loved, we both loved, and that was Susan Camel, who had a lot yes. to do with this book happening. Oh. Yes, she did. So, yes. I, I, I'm so, I wish I could share this with her. I, just wish she could be here for her. Oh, I, can, but... I can hear that sense of humor in her oh, saying something, you know, witty and smart. Totally. And all yes. Of that. Yes. So, so Jen, tell me, tell me your story. How did Mitch. you? How did you get to be? 
who you got to be and how did oh you get to be so God. funny and how did you get to spend four years writing on the Stephen Colbert show and being oh the voiceover and all of that stuff. Okay. First, I have to say that Mitchell, I, I know your listeners must know this, but I am so relaxed. I'm so soothed to the point of feeling like I almost need to curl up listening to you. You're so relaxing to be around. And it's not just because you're licking me and making me feel so good. Sorry that I said licking me, but um, uh, so uh, thank you so much for having me on. This is it's so exciting to talk to you. Um, in terms of how I got to be, to get to this place, I mean, I mean, it, it's been, I, I mean, my, before writing the book, it was, over seven years of writing topical political satire, the most recently at Colbert for four years, then at The Onion before that. And I mean, that has been my like professional comedy life. And, and I still, yes, as you mentioned, I still am the announcer for The Late Show, which is just this sweet um, money gig that's awesome. Um, but I mean, short form, short, humorous fiction has always been something that I love and I love short funny story collections they don't it doesn't seem like there's a lot of them I mean the few that I'm obsessed with I love and I've always wanted to write my own and so at Colbert I started after I mean at least I don't know seven or eight years of rejection of submitting stuff to the New Yorker I finally got one in and after that it was they were just kind of getting in and then then I was like, ooh, that gave me the confidence to think maybe I could actually sell a book. And when I, when I did, and then I did that. And this has been, I mean, working for The Onion and working for, Col for Colbert were so fun and so challenging and exciting. And, but this, this is the most exciting thing I've ever done. That's for sure. So, so when you got your BA from Barnard, yes, were you drawn to humorous uh, writing even at that time? Did you? I, I did you know you wanted to write then at that point. I I knew I wanted to write, and I was really drawn to humor, and I was doing it in improv and in acting at, at school, but. I had no, I mean, this is 2007, and today it's totally different for kids in college, but I just had no connection between like humor writing and money. And so I was like, okay, I'll be an arts journalist. That's the only, like, I'll write about things I think are interesting, but I didn't, I don't know. I, I, and I guess I just didn't have the balls to think I could just be a writer. So I actually, I interned at NPR and I wrote for all, I wrote for like the Columbia and Barnard papers and I did radio journalism in school. Just that, then senior year, I wrote something for McSweeney's, which is this, you know, the website, it has short humor pieces, just for your listeners. And mm -hmm. the first thing I got, got on. And so that gave me a totally skewed idea of how easy a career in comedy was going to be for me, but it was very motivating. So I started writing for McSweeney stuff towards the end of and, college. What propelled you to get an MFA at Northwestern? Oh, yes. Okay. Is that because you thought you were going to go a little bit more traditional? Route well, well, yes. When I so after Barnard, a few years, I I I moved to Chicago and I was just doing improv and sketch. And you at, did you do stuff at Second City? I did. I did stuff at Second did. City and right. and Improv Olympic and the Annoyance. And I just did just hustling jobs. I mean, no. Okay, that sounds like I actually hustle. <laughs> no, I I just did dumb jobs for money, like dumb gigs, like. I literally, like one day I, I did this, I did a gig for DiGiorno where I dressed up as a cop 
and I had to hand people citations for having a boring lunch. So really, so just money stuff. And actually, and I mentioned that only because I did the MFA at Northwestern because by that point I was 25. I was like, okay, I know I want to write professionally in any way that I can, if it's for TV or, or movies or books. And the MFA really was a reprieve from having to do money day jobs because I, I took out loans and I was like, ooh, for two years, I can just write, do classes, focus on this. And it, and it was almost like buying a stamp of authenticity. Yeah. It sounds like it was also a transition for you as well. It was because it was a, it was very much a, almost literally putting my money in, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell people that I'm a writer and maybe this program will help. I mean, really what you're buying when you do an MFA is simply deadlines, like, and, and you, and deadlines that you will honor. Whereas if you're not doing the MFA, you might not get used to finishing drafts, which really is the only real skill that I feel like I picked up. Did, now, was there a big break that you had after that? Was it The Onion? Was it The New Yorker? Oh, yes. The Onion was the big break because The Onion came before I got anything into The New Yorker. I was definitely still getting rejected when I got hired at The Onion. And The Onion was the huge break because, I mean, when I got in there in like 2013, and it still is the same way. It's very mysterious how you get involved. It's kind of like a band. It's a group of people and they are so, these people are the funniest, smartest people ever. And I always wanted to work there. I had no idea how you got a job there. It was so, finally a friend of a friend knew someone there and um, basically forwarded me the email to, to just do an audition to be a fellow. And they take on two fellows I think um, twice a year and it's like you do a six month audition where you work full time as staff and they give you a stipend and if it works out at the end of the six months, they keep you on the staff. And, and what was odd about my situation was that I did apply out of like a slush pile and they have such a deep bench of contributors and people that they've groomed for years. And I was very unusually able to get in and not have to go that route. What's the what was the world like in the what is their office? Oh like my god! What is it like being in the onion milieu? Yes, well, the, it literally is just one of these horrible open plan offices in River North in Chicago. It, 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 I only say horrible because open plan offices are horrible. But um, I mean, it's it's a it's a you it's a it's a nine to five, just Monday to Friday. You literally do go to an office, and you don't have your own office. You know, we're all sitting next to each other. Um, but it's a lot of, it's a lot of meetings. Um, it's a lot of pitch meetings and notoriously very little laughter. Um, it's, it's infamously it's brutal and the rejection is constant and these people get to be your extremely good friends. And so it's all, it, it, and, and we're all around the same age. And so, uh, we have like the same references and it's a very, like I came from improv, which is very yes. And, and the onion is very no, but so, so that's, but, but in a, in a great way, in a, in a way that actually it's their, their taste is, they're extremely discerning and they have the highest standards so that I, something I was shocked by when I first got there, if a few people, if we're pitching on headlines on that day's topical stories and a few people have headlines that are really funny, but they're kind of similar and they're kind of making the same point. 
they invalidate each other because because the, we'll think, oh, well, that's too obvious of a point if two of us are saying it and we need to get something better. And if anyone has made a similar joke on Twitter or anywhere, we would never make a similar joke. It's a very high standard that they have. So how would you contrast that with the writing room at the Colbert, on, on the Colbert show? Also, also a very high standard because it is led so personally by Stephen and Stephen's sensibility and his breadth of references are, I mean, his, the references and the depth of knowledge that he brings, I've never been in a room with a brain like his. Um, in terms of uh, if on these late night shows, uh, you know, sometimes we'll, we'll talk about, we might make a point that isn't necessarily completely untrodden, you know, uh, but it was similar, it, it was similar to The Onion in that, you know, you, you're holding yourself to a really, really high standard and there's a lot of rejection because um, you're just pitching so much. I think so, somewhere you wrote that sort of over 50% of everything you pitched was, oh, was rejected. Exactly, exactly. And the only difference between, and the thing is, is that for the most emotionally evolved or unevolved of the writers, it hurts like hell. And the only difference is that you've got to be able to roll with it and you've got to just, just roll with it and focus on the next pitch. And, and I, I certainly learned how to do that at The Onion and that served me really well at Colbert because it's a bummer to get stuff rejected all the time. Well, the really cool thing too, what you got to do is talk a little bit about how you got to stretch your acting muscle a little oh, bit geez. as well on Colbert. <laughs> Oh, that was so cool. I mean, I, I, I ended up being one of the writers that, that Stephen and the other writers would cast and stuff. And so I, there, was, there were a few recurring bits. There was a recurring bit where me and another one of the brilliant writers, this guy, John Thibodeau, we did this thing where we basically were Fox News anchors. And so we would have our own fake in, in-house Fox News show. So that was fun. We actually went to a Trump rally in Orlando. It was very upsetting, but... Um, yeah, I mean, that, that was cool. And I generally was cast close to my type. So, you know, that, like political staffer, like, you know, st like stuff that I'd, I never had to stretch, uh, stretch that much. The only thing that was the challenge was I just did so many bits and often we would do the bits live. One time, actually, I, I had to hide under Steven's desk for like an hour because I, I, was, I arrived in the show only at a certain point. And so I had to, I had to be under the desk it was physically incredibly painful. And then at a certain point I had to pop up and whenever you're doing these live bids, it's even though I came from improv and I'd been performing for so long, it's nerve wracking. It's horrible. You know, you're sick. You're sick until you actually do it. And so I just, I did learn to live with that. And it was also, it's so fun, like in the Ed Sullivan Theater building where the show is, it's like a total warren. And it's so cool. Cause you know, like the Beatles were there and everyone was in these hallways and I was just always going down and doing hair and makeup and stuff. And it's so fun to do hair and makeup. And you also get to, you got to get out of work. Like, and so that would be hours of just sitting in hair and makeup. And it was totally fun. I also like the voiceovers that you did. Oh, thank you. you. Know, those, those were brilliant. brilliant. Oh, thank you, you were so Hillary. much. Weren't you Hillary? Yes, yes. It's so funny. Hillary. I was, when we did, we used to have a Hillary cartoon. There was this Hillary cartoon puppet. I did her and we did that live. And so that was actually... I think it was one of the first times they've ever done live VO 
with a cartoon on TV. And it was pretty nerve wracking, actually, although it went well. But I, I, yes, I do the voice of Hillary and Jill Biden, actually, on a different cartoon that Stephen produces called Our Cartoon President. And it's so fun to do both of them. They're so different. How did the introduction come to be? Uh, how did you, how did that happen? Yes, that was just that Stephen, uh, when, the, when the show happened, Our Cartoon President, which was parodying the Trumps and now hopefully will be renewed and will just be about, you know, Biden. Um, I was already doing Hillary and the writers of that new show knew me and liked me. So they asked me to do Hillary and then they would just ask me to audition for different things. And I auditioned for Jill and they liked that. And so that was it. That's it's great. I mean, <laughs> I hear you now and then I'm hearing. Oh, that's I know. <laughs> it's really, really great. Thank so you. before we talk about your book, yeah. You talked about that there are lots of writers that you're obsessed with who write from a, you know, with a sense of humor. Who are the writers that inspire you? Yes, so many. Um, I have to start with Simon Rich. I love yeah. his work. I mean, he's very, very special. Um, Jack Handy, and I do, I'm not only going to mention people to blurb my book, but I love, I love Jack. Actually, Jack and I just co-wrote a piece that's going to run on The New Yorker next week where he, um, he, I blurb his blurb about my book, and then he blurbs my blurb about his blurb, and we just go back and forth blurbing each other, and we eventually, it escalates to violence. So, it's, so that was really fun. Um, Miranda July's first novel, I never read her short stories, and I read The First Bad Man, which really, I was... I thought was just so cool and inspiring. Um, I recently read for the first time Gene Kerr's essay collection, Please Don't Eat the Daisies. I never heard of it. It holds up, like it really holds up. It's very funny. Um, and then, I mean, I, I'm just trying, the straight humor stuff, I mean, cause I, so much of what I'm inspired by is not humorous. And um, I mean, oh, I think- You can talk about that too. Right. You're right. I'm, th I'm thinking of, and I'll think of new stuff too, but like some old Goldies I'm obsessed with, Roald Dahl's short fiction for adults, Shirley Jackson short stories. There is an, a very under the radar story collection by a woman named Jen George. I was really impressed. It's called The Babysitter at Rest. And then I, I was very impressed with that. I read that she was really inspired by Leonora Carrington. I had never read Leonora Carrington. She's this surrealist writer this English surrealist expat writer in Mexico. I, I read that when I was writing these and I was really inspired. But, and then, and then it's, it's boring and obvious, but Woodhouse, obsessed. Obsessed with these comedic novels, obviously, obviously obsessed with Birdie and Jeeves, but his standalone, just comedy novels, I'm, I just think are so, they really, he, his career, his writing ethic that I've learned some about is, a very inspiring. Well, those are those are great suggestions. Thank, <laughs> Thank you. you. So we have big time, and this is your collection of stories. And to, to give you an idea, this is what Stephen says about you. He says many of these stories feel warm and familiar, almost comfort food. But inside the burrito of this book, there is a small dusting of broken glass, sparkling prettily but stinging. I think that's why I like Big Time. It reminds me of Jen Spira, funny and strange and strangely honest. I think that really sums up lots of what this is about. You're so, thank you, Mitchell. I, I, 
I did love that line about the sparkling of glass. I, I did felt seen. I definitely felt seen by Stephen and I really appreciated it. Let's talk about the title story big time. I love that you started with that one. That's my favorite. That came from a few very, very specific um, things that I love that were knocking around in my brain. So one was, I mean, I'm, I, love old, I love old Hollywood and I love Hollywood memoirs. I love rags to riches Hollywood stories like, you know, Clark Gable's life story and Barbara Stanwyck's life story. Um, that's something I've always loved. So that was just, that's always knocking around. Then specifically, I had never seen this, um, this famous pre-code Hollywood movie, Babyface, starring mm -hmm. Barbara Streisand. It's, it's famous because it, it kind of stands out as one of the pre-code ones because the, the Barbara Stanwyck, maybe? I'm so sorry, Barbara, Barbara Stanwyck. Stanwyck. I keep saying, yes, Barbara Stanwyck. Um, it's, it's incredibly dark and um, it, it's, it's shockingly dark and tells a, and, and tells a, a story similar to the one that I tell about a a woman who wants who will make it at at any cost. Um, that and then there was a there was an art there was an interview with Ava Gardner in Vanity Fair in like 2013, and it was so good. And her voice was I just could have hung out with her all day. And those were just some references that I had. And I I then I then got it in my head that I'd love to tell. Hollywood story and as I sort of have had real life experiences in Hollywood pitching to you know heads of studios and going into rooms and I I just started thinking gee what would a character like an old-timey femme fatale very hard-boiled um, self-starter how how it, it's just a different it's such a different world now that the, the fish out of water Oh, I love possibilities. It was great. I love that the fish out of water, someone coming, someone experiencing the modern world, but with their own sensibility. Exactly. So Which can, oh, thank you, Mitchell, because it can be, it's such a, it, you know, you just don't want it to be corny. So you really have to watch, but I, I tried to thread the needle. Well, there's all kinds of, you know, we don't want to, we don't want to, we don't want too many spoilers here, but I oh. can go on and on and on. As, you know, the one about the bride, you have the one about the bride. Yes, Talk yes. That well. that yes. Oh, that's awesome. Well, that one, that, that story is called Bridal Body and it came out of a really personal place. And actually, even though so many of these stories are silly and go to zany places, they're really mostly emotionally grounded in, in my real life experiences. And so I wrote that when I was, um, getting ready for my own wedding. And the story is about a woman who puts herself through hell to get ready for her wedding day. And that was me. I, I fell into this trap where I was like, okay, how hot can I get? How, and, and all the attention and the focus that I was putting on this, which is so besides the point of, of, of the event, it just started to strike me as obscene and funny that I was doing that. And then I started to imagine how, how far could I take this, you know? And I started thinking how it was funny to think that of a character who was getting so hot for her wedding that she and her fiance wouldn't really make sense anymore. And in fact, the only guys left in her league would be Timothy Chalamet and The Rock. So uh, that, that, those were just observations I had. And selfishly, I was spending so much time planning the wedding and getting hot that I was like, I really better write a story about all this because I'm like, I wanted to get some creative juice out of that experience. <laughs> so I sort of forced myself and then that was that story. And you certainly did. So from getting hot, talk about the snowman as well. <laughs> oh my God. Well, okay. The snowman is based on something that I was obsessed with as a child and continue to love that famous 
Raymond Briggs, the British guy in the 1980s, he had that cartoon. It's very lyrical about a boy's magical adventure with a snowman that he builds who comes to life. So I, that's, that real life cartoon is about, you know, a child's existential kind of um, learning about the fragility of existence and kind of having an existential awakening. And I wanted to tell a story like that tracking that transformation, but in a much grittier way. So my version of that story is we start in the same place where a boy builds a snowman and the snowman magically comes to life, but then the snowman takes the boy on an adventure that is less child-friendly really than it should be. And um, it really was just, and, and that one that one was the most fun and easy to write. It was actually around Christmas when I was writing it. And as I mentioned, I am Jewish, but I insist on having a Christmas tree because I just love those so much. And I just was sitting, the Christmas tree was like in front of the couch and I was like, it was so relaxing to write this Christmas story. And it was very fun to come home from Colbert and then slip into this really gentle, silly, fun world. So that one was just fun to write. So, so you just mentioned that was the easiest. So what was the hardest one to write? Oh my God. The hardest one was big time. That, that title that story. It, yeah. it was, I mean, I, I took, um, I wrote it over two years. Uh, it, 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 I love how it ended up. It went through at least two full drafts that were so sucking and so not working. And, and I had already talked a big game to my editors. I told them, this is the title of the book. This is going to be a third of the book. And it made me sick. Honestly, I was sick for two years. <laughs> and it's, I know it's, but, but I am, I'm glad uh, what happened. All is well that ends well, right? That's right. Like Simon, Simon Rich, who made yeah. such a wonderful transition to television. Yes. I think some of the stuff that he's done in television is just so brilliant, so oh, hilarious. We're the same. What What do you love? Well, I love the one about the um, you know, the the Middle Ages, the one with. The, oh, that was great! Yeah, um, uh, miracle you know, miracle work. The, it's miracle workers, but the Dark Ages. What's it the, called? The Dark Ages. Actually. The Dark Ages. That was excellent. It begs the question: Do you see yourself sort of transitioning to doing some television or film? I, I do. I, I mean, what I, what I want to do is continue work, continue writing books and writing, do, switch off between books and TV. I have been developing, there, there has been some TV development surrounding this book that unfortunately I can't really chat about yet. You mean with some of the stories? With some of the, from? yes, exactly. Exactly. With some of the stories and even actually with just some early pages of the book that I showed a long time ago to um, one of my favorite writers and I, I unfortunately can't say it right now, but um, so, so I have been writing some scripts based on stuff with the book, but uh, I just want to do both because the yeah. freedom, the freedom that you get with fiction, when you come from TV and then you get to write a story and you get to cast it and you don't have to think about casting or budget or anything. And it's all just, it's all just exactly what you want. Oh, it's like, it's so fun. No, no. It's, I, I think that's something that most writers who have not been involved in the collaborative world of television or film don't really, they take for granted the ability of having control, complete control over the material. That's really something. I'm so glad you said that because you're right. I was only thinking if you come from TV, you're aware of budget stuff and you're aware of casting limitations, but there's also just the, I just the suddenly there are the joys of collaboration and then there are the demonic horrors. <laughs> and so, so you just to be free from that. Yeah, you're right. I, 
I am, I appreciate this freedom more than other people. I, think. I mean, you'll take notes from your editor, but you don't have to take notes from, you don't have nine people giving you notes on a zoom call, right? Oh my, <laughs> of course. And you don't have people. I mean, when you're on a late night show, you give in the script and they do what they want with it. I mean, like, you know, they might cut your favorite joke and it doesn't, you don't have a, I mean, it's over once you head into the script because you are just feeding the machine and serving the common good. And, you have to know your place as a staff writer. Would you read a little something? Could you read a little something? Oh, from the book? I would love to. I would I love, love to. Love Thank you. I I will read um, actually a little bit um, of that story, Bridal Body. Perfect. Okay. Wonderful. Okay. Um, bridal Body. I wanted to look and feel my best at my wedding. What bride doesn't? So three months before the big day, I stripped naked, stepped in front of a mirror, and took stock of my goals. I had work to do, no doubt about it. My hips have always been my biggest problem area. I definitely needed to do something about them. Same with my stomach. And of course, my neck tattoo, which says property of chainsaw. I traced my fingers over the faded script, sighing in disgust. I don't care how good of a kisser your ninth grade boyfriend is. Never get a tattoo of his name outside the bikini area. These problems weren't gonna magically fix themselves, so I decided to join a gym and booked a session with a personal trainer named Diego. After we'd introduced ourselves, Diego asked me about my fitness goals. I told him that my wedding was in three weeks, excuse me, three months, and I wanted toned arms, a flat stomach, and sculpted legs. He told me he'd like a nine-inch cock that prints money. I thought that was harsh, but I had to respect his tough love approach and I realized it might be just the ticket. Should I keep going, Mitchell? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just <told. laughs> I'm sorry. When I, I realized, and I was like, oh shit, I, I realized it has that right in the beginning. No, no, well, this is, that doesn't get people to buy the book. I don't know. <laughs> I, well, uh, I do like being honest and being like, hopefully you look at it, and if that, if that scares or upsets you, then God yeah. bless you, and yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> I tell you, Jen, this, I, I really mean it, you know. In this time, this crazy year that we had, this book came and it's coming at the right time. It's published oh, today. Yes. Um, I will end our talk by reading this great <laughs> quote by Simon Rich, who we mm. talked about. Big time made me laugh out loud over and over again. After a while, the feeling became physically unpleasant. <laughs> there was something invasive about it like I was being tickled by a giant. Hilarious, confident, and brutal. Spira is one of my favorite humor writers working today. Oh my and, God. You know, today you are mine as well. And um, I just have to thank you for being on The Literary Life, Jen. Oh. And I hope we get a chance to see one another in the physical world sometime soon. Oh, me too. Thank you so much. This was such a pleasure. I really appreciate you having me. Thank you, Mitchell.